We're going to continue in our sermon series, Refresh, over the book of Acts. And by continue, I mean we are actually going to finish the book of Acts today. We have been in the book of Acts for quite a while, and so we are actually finishing up the book of Acts uh, today. Um, So, uh, yeah, you can turn to Acts 28. Uh, I saw a uh, story, we were talking about it just before uh, church started, but I don't know if you guys saw a story about the, uh, uh, a uh, rocket, a Chinese rocket that is apparently going to crash somewhere. Um, and by somewhere, I mean, I saw a graphic on the news that was like, here's the danger zone, and it was literally everything but like Antarctica and like Greenland. And it was like, we don't know where it's going to crash, likely in the ocean, because guess what? Most of the world is ocean. Uh, but... It's going to crash somewhere. Uh, And it was just really fascinating. But then they were like, I mean, it was like a big deal because it was like this huge rocket, right? And then they were like, well, it's it's a very, very, very small chance that it could do any damage because it's going to get like burned up in the atmosphere. And it was really interesting of like, why why this headline that sounds so like, uh, like doomsday, right? And it's because our culture and particularly uh, like 24-hour cable news culture has bought into this idea that bad news sells. We as a culture just kind of love to hear bad news and to freak out about it, right? There's this whole uh, new thing that uh, people describe called doom scrolling. You may not have heard of it, but you probably know what it is in the sense that you sit in your bed right before you go to bed and you're on your phone and you just kind of scroll through your social media feed, or the news, and you just keep scrolling, and it's like bad news after bad news after bad news. And you get sort of sucked into what's going on in the world. And and then I hear about some tragedy, and then another tragedy. And then I'm concerned about people on the other side of the globe that I might never see or meet, and I'm also concerned about a rocket flying into the atmosphere, and about uh, rising global temperatures, and about rising COVID cases, and about like on and on and on and on. And we get sort of sucked into it and then addicted to keep going because we love bad news. Sometimes we try and cleanse our timeline, right? If you've heard that phrase, we cleanse our timeline with funny videos of cats or babies or people falling. People falling is just like, I don't know why, but it's just one of my favorite things. (laughs) Probably because I'm pretty clumsy myself and fall often, and my wife laughs at me very often when I fall or get injured. So uh, is that the answer, though? Is that the answer to doom scrolling? It's just cleansing our timeline. Permanently, only consuming good news, avoiding all suffering. Well, I don't think that can be a part of it. As we learned last week, suffering, whether it's from uh, any part of your life, suffering's going to be a part of your life. That's how it's going to be. At some point, you will face some suffering. So I don't think we can just escape all suffering. But how do we avoid doom scrolling and how do we avoid escapism? where we just run away from all suffering. Well, I think it is that we need to live as good news people in a world of suffering. Now, there may be many ways that we could have described the book of Acts throughout this series, but one way that we could describe the book of Acts is simply that, being good news people in a world of suffering. Peter 
the apostles in Jerusalem, Philip, Stephen, Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, on and on, all are living as good news people in a world of suffering. Where there is much pain and anguish, they speak to the resurrection and to hope. And they live out a radical kind of love in the midst of that time. And so, as we conclude this series on refresh, if we are to refresh our priorities as a church, we want to live as good news people. And to live as good news people, I want to show us from Acts 28 two things that will be about us living as good news people. The first is radical hospitality. And the second is bold proclamation of Jesus Christ. Living as good news people means radical hospitality and bold proclamation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to pick up in Acts 28. And we're actually going to read through all of Acts 28 together here now. And then we'll come back and comment on a few of the pieces. If you remember, Paul was shipwrecked. And then he arrived on the island of Malta. This is where we left off last week. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. The people of the island saw it hanging from his hands and said to each other, a murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. The people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead, but when he had, they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. Now, remember one of the things that we said early on in the book of Acts? Some places in narrative in the scriptures where we fall into uh, problems is when we expect narrative to be prescriptive to our lives and not simply descriptive of what happened. Let me say this. I don't think the, this chapter is prescribing for you to grab poisonous snakes, all right? <laughs> like, let, this is not the thing that we're doing from now on of like, well, happened to Paul. Might as well just grab some poisonous snakes and see what happens. Like, this is a miracle. Miracles are things that are out of the ordinary. So you should expect the ordinary would happen if you come across a poisonous snake and you will likely swell up and die. So let's avoid poisonous snakes. Remember, this is descriptive of what happened. But here's what's really interesting about this, right? What do they say when he gets bit? A murderer, no doubt. He escaped justice in the sea, but he will face it now and die. But here's the thing. Paul is a murderer. Don't you remember who Paul is? Paul was the one who was chasing down the church. Paul's responsible for holding the coats at Stephen's martyrdom, meaning he gave approval to that death. Paul is a murderer. And yet Paul has experienced the forgiveness of his sins. And God has granted him grace and mercy and has said to him, you are going to testify about me in Rome. Therefore, I'm going to protect you. And so we see in the midst of this, these people understand this notion of justice, that it's going to come immediate 
And it's going to uh, certainly cause judgment immediately. And yet, the gospel shows us that even in the place in which we deserve justice, we are often granted mercy. Paul is a murderer, and yet he is granted the mercy of God. All right, but, but again, clearly, please don't go grab poisonous snakes and say, well, Josh said, uh, no, 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 Paul, happened to Paul, not going to happen to you. I mean, maybe, but not likely. <laughs> All right, so near the shore where we landed, there was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. As it happens, Publius's father was ill and f- with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him, and laying his hands on him, he healed him. Remember, again, this is a sign of the miraculous which comes in as the gospel is first breaking in and is a sign pointing to the fact that this man has been called by God. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. As a result, we were showered with honors, and when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. Now, it doesn't say that Paul then proclaimed the gospel here, but knowing Paul's history, I am sure as they gathered together, Paul also got the opportunity to proclaim the gospel here. And if you see a man get bit by a poisonous snake and live and then pray and heal others, you are likely going to listen to what he has to say. And so likely a church was formed from this encounter. It was three months after the shipwreck that we set sail on another ship that had wintered on the island, an Alexandrian ship with the twin gods as its figurehead. Our first stop was Syracuse where we stayed three days. You know, we mentioned this last week. There is a lot of detail in Acts 27 and 28. One of the things that we should pick up from that is, remember, Luke changes to we when he's present. It makes a ton of sense that Luke would have a lot more detail in sections that he is present for versus sections in which he's going off of the accounts of others that he has learned from. This is another good example of why the book of Acts is trustworthy. It makes sense that this is how it was written if Luke is adding a bunch of detail that we were like, that seems unnecessary. But Luke's telling his story. And he's jumping in where he was a part of things. From there, we sailed across across to Regium. A day later, a south wind began blowing. So the following day, we sailed up the coast to Putilia. There we found some believers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. We finally made it to Rome. Finally, they've made it to Rome. But you know what's really interesting here? Rome is the center of the known world at the time. But guess what? There are already believers around here. You know, Paul, we we see Paul as a sort of hero in the midst of the book of Acts. And certainly that's one way to see him. And certainly we can honor the work that God did through Paul But Paul shows up at a place where there's already believers. What church was Paul sent out from? Antioch. Who planted Antioch? Some believers. Some folks. We don't know who they are. The work of God is always done in ways that are unseen by most. 
The most important things that God is doing in the world are not through like the celebrity folks that are out there that have big names, but through ordinary folks living as good news people. And that's been true in Paul's experience. And Paul doesn't show up at a place where there are believers who are going to welcome him apart from the ordinary work of Christians taking the gospel with them as they go. The brothers and sisters in Rome had heard we were coming, so they came to meet us at the Forum on the Appian Way. Others joined us there at the Three Taverns. That sounds like a cool place to hang out, the Three Taverns. When Paul saw them, he was encouraged and thanked God. When we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. Now, it's, it's interesting for us to, to figure this out. Paul clearly has a little bit of freedom, and we're going to see some of that. But we should not think in that, that Paul is also still not incarcerated. Paul is incarcerated here. He's under house arrest. Now, he may have a better situation than he has had in other places, but he is still under persecution by the Roman government. Three days after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish, Jewish leaders. He said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. The Romans tried me and wanted to release me, but because they found no cause for the death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. Remember, Paul is saying, I appealed to Caesar not because I'm trying to get the Jewish leaders in trouble, but because I know they're trying to kill me. And if the Romans release me, I'm going to be killed. And so I appealed to Caesar. So I asked you to come here today so that we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I am bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. They replied, we have, no, we have had no letters from Judea or reports against you from anyone who has come here. Paul may be a little bit notorious to the leaders in Jerusalem, but to the folks in Rome, he is not yet known. But we, wanted to, we want to hear from you, sorry, we want to hear what you believe, for the only thing we know about this movement it is, is that it is denounced everywhere. So they have heard of Christians, they have heard of the way, and they have heard that this is being denounced. Maybe? Oh, there it goes. So a time was set, and on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Hopefully no one was tired and fell out of a window this time and died. Paul's been known to cause that before. From morning until evening. So, you know, if you guys think I go long, I don't go from morning until evening. So... Give me a little bit of a break here. Remember, not prescriptive, descriptive. I have to go. I don't have to go morning till evening, right? Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, 
Go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. So I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. That's the end of the book of Acts. Now, we we don't know for certain, but we have good evidence from church history and tradition that Paul, after this two-year period, was eventually released. We don't know any of the details around that. There seems likely that there is some evidence that Paul was released. He did some more traveling. But ultimately, Paul is brought back to Rome, we believe, and arrested a, a second time, and then ultimately condemned and killed by the emperor Nero. But the book of Acts ends on this sort of open-ended Paul in Rome, preaching the gospel without hindrance. And so I want to look back and forth through this text and a few others to see what does it mean to live like that, to live as good news people in a world of suffering, to live as good news people in a world of suffering. Paul says, it says here at the end that Paul welcomed all who visited him, welcomed all who visited him. So the first step of living as a good news person is radical hospitality, radical hospitality. Paul has seen this. It's something he's experienced, right? He's on the island of Malta. What happens? They gather around and they care for him. He shows up, the believers come, they gather around and they care for him. Paul also extends the same to others. Radical hospitality. Now, hospitality is a word that we often use, and we mostly think about it in terms of hanging out with our friends and creating a great environment for folks to come and to be with us. Now, that is good, and and we should do that. But the word hospitality in the scriptures is really about love of strangers. The word Translated hospitality is really the word for stranger and the word for love put together. Love of strangers. Radical hospitality is this showing of kindness to strangers. Right? Jesus says, you love your friends. Great. Everyone does that. What about those you don't know and even your enemies? Says that Paul welcomed all. How does he do that? What kind of, what, 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 what does this kind of hospitality require? Well, I think first it requires a level of humility. One of the things that's interesting about this text and about the book of Acts is the, the way in which the book of Acts traces geographically. Do you remember that when uh, Jesus ascends into heaven, what does he say to his disciples? You will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's going to start here in Jerusalem. 
Where do the disciples go right after that? They go to the upper room. This room in which Jesus and his disciples share the Last Supper, the room in which the early church gathers together, and there's about 120 people left who follow Jesus after the crucifixion and resurrection. 120 people. 28 chapters later, we're in Rome, the center of the known world in which Paul is going to proclaim the gospel to Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. They've started, though, not there. That's the way of the kingdom. When Jesus shows up on the scene, you know Rome's like a thing when Jesus shows up on the scene. Does he ever go to Rome? No. What good can come from Nazareth? Jesus is not from that place. He never goes to that place. Who does Jesus spend his time with? A bunch of fishermen? A Samaritan woman at a well? Sinners and tax collectors? Those known to be outcast in society? That's who Jesus, the Son of God, spends his time with. And then he eventually sends Paul to go and speak to the most powerful people in the world. But that's only after Paul has started in this humble place. This is really important because I think we see Paul's radical hospitality as an outgrowth of Paul's humility. He started in an upper room Well, actually, Paul didn't start in an upper room. The church started in an upper room. Paul started actually persecuting the church, but ends in Rome. Paul also has the humility to receive hospitality. Paul isn't just giving hospitality. He's also receiving it. That takes faith. Paul trusts himself, entrusts himself to Christians he's never met. He shows up in Malta and those who it seems like don't even know the Lord, right? Because they are uh, clearly attributing Paul to be a God. They don't even know the Lord. He entrusts himself to them. Takes incredible faith in the Lord to protect him and also humility. What does it look like for us to have that kind of humility so that we can move towards radical hospitality? Well, it would take humility to admit who we are and who we're not. Don't be so interested in making a name for yourself in work, in life, in business, in school, in ministry, that you neglect to know the names of your neighbors and welcome them into your life. Your physical neighbors that live next to you, but also your neighbors more broadly in this city. Right? If we're going to show radical hospitality, welcoming and loving strangers in this place, it means we have to care about this place, not all the other places where we are not. That takes humility to admit there are Christians who will take care of those things in those places, and I am called to take care of the things in this place that I call my home. That God is at work here. It takes humility to admit, I can't solve every problem. 
And part of what causes us to solve no problems is because we think we can solve all problems. And so we endlessly like fall into this trap over and over of being discouraged that nothing can be done because we don't have the humility to admit we can't do all things, but we can do some things. Radical hospitality will take this kind of humility. Humility to admit this will lead to a freedom to welcome all. If I'm humble in this way, because the Lord has welcomed me, I can welcome anyone, not being concerned about how it will look to others. Not being concerned about my reputation, but about truly welcoming and loving others and caring for their well-being. Imagine Paul here. What is the first thing he does? He gathers the Jewish leaders. Why is Paul in prison? Because of the Jewish leaders. He goes immediately to his people and immediately to those who have been his enemies. What are the Christians going to think? The Jewish leaders say, we've heard about this, and we, the only thing we've heard is that it's denounced everywhere. And the Christians are like, Paul, those are the first people you're going to invite to your home? Yeah, because God's called me to love my own, and he's called me to be a witness to the Gentiles. So yeah, I'm going I'm to call them first, because that's what God has called me to do. What about Jesus? Jesus had the reputation for hanging out with sinners all the time, right? The religious leaders called him a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he was at parties. Because he looked like he associated with folks that no one should associate with if you're religious, if you're holy. Are we so concerned for our reputation that we're not willing to welcome like Jesus does? It takes humility for us to own that God has welcomed us, he cares for us, and therefore we don't need to be concerned about our reputation. Now, there certainly is wisdom in what that looks like, absolutely. But a refusal to do it because of my reputation, that's something different. Welcoming all, even potential enemies. Also, welcoming all, what does it say? He lived at his own expense. Now, Paul's on some sort of house arrest. We don't know the details of how this works, but he is also funding this thing through his, uh, through his ministry partners, whatever. I don't, I don't know exactly how that worked for Paul, but Paul is sacrificing for the sake of welcoming others while on house arrest. Paul's welcoming people while he's incarcerated. That should be humbling to us because we struggle to welcome people because it feels a little inconvenient. He welcomes all, even in his chains. Now, what does that look like for us? Well, I think there's a real question of what does it look like to welcome all in the midst of a pandemic? Like, that's a legit, real question. What does that mean? How do we do that? Well, I think we can acknowledge first in humility, this is hard. The church hasn't done this in our lifetime. So it's hard. We don't have all the answers. So we got to give each other grace in how everyone is responding to this and how we're trying to welcome others. I would say also part of loving neighbor is taking precautions to be able to welcome neighbor. 
Like it's good to take the precautions and to listen to medical experts to know how we can start to welcome our neighbors again. So we should take those precautions. We should think through those things. And then we should also prepare, how how, how can we care for folks who are isolated and alone? We are the most connected people ever to live on the planet. We have means to connect with people, even strangers. And when we do so, do we have a welcoming spirit or a critical judgmental spirit? We can welcome others in the midst of this. We can also think through what does it mean to uh, uh, welcome others as the pandemic starts to end. Folks have lived life in this place in a sort of disembodied reality. We're not created for that. And the church ought to be a place of welcoming friendship and love and care to those who have been really hurt through that process. We can show up in very real ways with radical hospitality. Remember, Paul's ministry isn't built overnight. It says he, he stayed there for two years proclaiming the gospel. It's okay to take a long view approach to ministry. Hospitality helps us do that in welcoming others. Well, the opposite of radical hospitality is this uh, is, is the two things we talked about earlier, doom scrolling and escapism. Doom scrolling in a way of being obsessed with bad news to give me a reason to avoid my neighbors, a reason to fear my neighbors, a reason to go to war with my neighbors, a reason to see enemies. And escapism. No need to enter into the mess of neighborly love and hospitality because Jesus is going to come back someday. He's going to make all things new. So just enjoy some TV, get paid, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, those folks will die. Right? That's the kind of escapism mentality. Well, there's suffering around me, but eventually those folks are going to die. I'm going to take care of myself. Radical hospitality cuts right into this. Enter into the mess of people's lives around me and offer good news. Not bad news, good news. Offer Jesus. That gets us to our second point, proclamation. Proclamation of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul is consistent throughout the book of Acts, and here we see again, consistent with the same message. I asked you to come here today, Acts 28, 20, uh, so we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I am bound with this chain because I believe the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. Jesus has come. Paul is very clear with them. I believe the same things that you believe. I just think he's already come. Paul has been consistent with this throughout. I'm not trying to teach anything new. I'm trying to show you the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Right? So what does he say? He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets. The law and the prophets speak to Jesus. Paul is driven by the Spirit to engage with these leaders and tied to the Scriptures. And isn't that exactly how the book of Acts has gone? 
driven by the Spirit of God, obeying what the Spirit of God is doing and, and where he is leading and being tied to the Scriptures. The law and the prophets speak to this reality. We need to listen to them. The Messiah has come. And then what does Paul go on to say? He says, the Holy Spirit was right when he said. He's speaking about being driven by the Holy Spirit. He's listening to the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly why Paul is here. He's been driven by the Spirit. What does it mean for us to be driven by the Spirit and tied to the Scriptures? It means we're willing to listen to, to God's Spirit. We're willing to sit in silence, and wait upon God to move, to lead us. And yet we're also tied to the scriptures, knowing that God is not going to speak in any way contradictory to what, where he has already spoken. And I've said this before, how are you going to know to listen to the voice of the Spirit in your everyday life and know whether it's contradicting the word of God or not? It means you have to know the word of God. We should be soaking in the scriptures if we're going to live as good news people. I think that the, the reality I often think when I look at my, when I get an alert on my iPhone that says, uh, hey, here's the screen time you've had this week. I think, man, I could know the scriptures so much better and have intimacy with Christ so much more if I would sacrifice a little of that time, just a little of that time, if I'm gonna be driven by the Spirit to enter into acts of radical hospitality, to know where he's leading, to know where he's going, I need to spend time with him apart from that, right? If I'm I'm gonna care for another person really well, let's say I'm shopping for a friend or a family member, if I don't know anything about them, I'm like freaking out. Like, I don't know what to buy them. Even, I mean, I'm saying hypothetically, because for me, I'm terrible at buying gifts anyway, and I know lots about people, and I'm, I just am terrible at it. But, but theoretically, I think this works. This is why you don't come up with the illustrations on the, point, on, on the spot here. But theoretically, I think this works, right? If I am going to do that, I need to know things about that person, Right? And not be scrambling to be like, okay, what do they want? What do they like? What do they do? But sometimes we live our Christian life that way, right? We show up in a situation and it's like, oh, what would God do? Ooh, what would he want me to do? Uh, If only there was a manual to life. If only there was something in which he had spoken to us. Guys, we have that. If we want to know how God wants us to act in various places in life, we need to soak in his word so that when we show up at a place, we don't have to pull out our Bible and be like, okay, wait, wait, wait. I know that you just asked that question. Give me a moment. Let me look for this. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Poisonous snake can bite my hand. Yes. Now, like, we're not going to know what to do in the moment if we're not prepared for it. By spending time with Jesus, right? You know, it's, it's funny to watch, uh, watch basketball. I, I love basketball, and I watch a lot of basketball. And to watch uh, younger generations play basketball, everyone thinks they're Steph Curry. 
right? Like everyone is like, boom, oh, I just stepped in. I can shoot a three from uh, full court. I know he shoots half court all the time, but I can shoot from full court, right? Without knowing the preparation that he goes through all the time. Like the amount of shots that he takes every day, never taking time off to do it because it's like, this is how you get to that level. You can't make it look effortless if you put in no effort. If we're gonna know how to live as Christians in the midst of a culture of suffering and respond like Jesus with no time spent with him beforehand, it's not gonna happen. We're gonna default into the way our culture views things, which is either going to be doom scrolling or escapism, or both, right? One leading to the other. Like, that's how we're going to do it if we're not going to be driven by the Spirit and tied to the Scriptures. What does Paul say to them at the end? He says, the Holy Spirit was right when he said this to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah. Go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. I'm pretty sure you said we were gonna be good news people. That sounds like bad news, (laughs) right? Like go out, share the gospel. No one's gonna hear. It's fine, right? That's kind of what it sounds like, but, but let, me, let, me, let me help you out here. All right, so in Luke chapter eight, remember Luke wrote Luke and Acts, but in Luke chapter eight, this is what Jesus quotes the exact same passage. His disciple, after he shares the, the parable of the scattering of the seed, his disciples asked him, Uh, what it meant. And he replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. He says, you have been given the secret of the kingdom, but I speak in parables so that folks are going to hear, but they're not really going to understand unless they have the secrets, unless they have the secret. But Jesus goes on to say this, No one lights a lamp and then covers it with a bowl or hides it under a bed. A lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open, and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. Okay, I wish I could talk a lot more about this because I love this in the Gospels, but have you ever noticed there's this weird thing in the Gospels where Jesus will heal someone, and then he'll be like, don't tell anyone. You're like, what is going on, man? Well, the gospel writers are weaving in this very theme, the secret of the kingdom. What does he tell them not to say? Who I am. What's the secret of the kingdom? Jesus. Who he is. And he wanted to reveal it at the right time to know this is who I really am. I'm not the conquering king. I'm the suffering servant. I will suffer first and then be resurrected into glory and then return, but first suffering. And those expectations weren't going to be met by his people at the time. And so he wanted to reveal that himself. But the secret of the kingdom is the identity of Jesus. What does Paul proclaim? 
The kingdom of God and Jesus. The kingdom of God and teaching about who Jesus is. Paul is doing exactly what Jesus said. This secret is going to be revealed, put out in the open. Share it broadly and widely. So when Paul uses this thing, he is saying, he's pointing back to this reality in which, yes, the message of the gospel will be rejected, but we are no longer speaking in parables and speaking in secrecy. Everything that is need, needs to be known for salvation has been revealed. Go and proclaim it. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. This is why Paul goes on to say in, in one of his letters, we denounce any underhanded method. We're not trying to hide anything. We're proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is. We're not trying to hide anything or trick anyone or coerce anyone into the kingdom. We're saying, hey guys, there is good news. The king has come, and not only has the king come, he died to make rebels a part of his family. That's good news. Let's shout it from the rooftops. Let's share it boldly, clearly, without trying to trick or hide anyone. We don't need to trick anyone into the kingdom. You know, that doesn't even work, right? Paul was a murderer. He hate, not just was he a murderer, he was trying to kill Christians. Only the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to him caused him to change. We boldly proclaim Jesus because the Holy Spirit does the work. That's how we live as good news people. What does he teach? He teaches the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. That means he teaches about the kingdom of God, meaning we're not just proclaiming personal salvation. Hey, there's a way to get out of hell. That's not the only proclamation we make. We proclaim that there is a way and we join you to follow us on the way. The kingdom of God, the ethics of the kingdom, kingdom living Caring for others, loving neighbor, loving the poor, loving the oppressed, seeking justice. All of those things are a part of proclaiming the kingdom of God. But he also teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, we're not just teaching about kingdom living. You know, there are times and places where you can lean on one of those and be accepted. Right? There are places in which you can lean only on preaching about preaching and talking amongst your friends and neighbors about personal salvation in Jesus and not anything about like kingdom ethics that affect other people and caring for the poor and systems and structures and all that stuff, right? And there's other places where you could talk about all that stuff, love a neighbor, love an enemy, all that stuff, but mention Jesus, uh-uh. But what does Paul do? He puts them both together. We don't get to choose if we're following the way, we got to follow the way. Kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, both together. That's the proclamation. That's how we be good news people. How do we do this? How do we proclaim this? Well, we proclaim this with our lives and our words. That means our announcement of Jesus shouldn't sound like doom scrolling. 
It shouldn't avoid the reality of judgment, certainly, but it should, not, it should glory in the good news of salvation to the lost. It should not glory in judgment. Any proclamation of Jesus that glories in judgment is not a proclamation of Jesus. It's a proclamation of self-righteousness. Our announcements of Jesus also shouldn't sound like escapism. Don't worry. There's no judge or justice, just happy thoughts for everyone after you die. Our proclamation of Jesus shouldn't sound like either of those. Proclaiming Jesus makes us good news people, meaning we enter into the real mess of life and we proclaim honestly and hopefully the good news of Jesus. So to put those two things together, the radical hospitality of welcoming strangers and neighbors and enemies and the loving and bold proclamation of Jesus Christ, that will define us as good news people. That will define us as good news people. Because here's the reality. Life's not going to get any easier. I think we all know that. It's not going to get any easier. Doom scrolling will just leave you depressed. Escapism, well, it sounds good in the moment, but it will also leave you depressed because you'll miss out on the joy you were created for, which is intimacy with your creator and your savior, Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's not escaping the mess. He's entering into it. So if you want intimacy with Jesus, you gotta go where he is. And he's in the mess. And you'll miss out on connection with Jesus and others. So a good news life combines the joy of the coming kingdom with being the hands and feet of Jesus now. And this is what the book of Acts ends with. And it ends by saying, no one tried to stop him. Friends, Jesus promises us that no one will stop the work of the church. It may be attempted. It may be pushed down. There may be real persecution. There may be real trial. There may be real things. And that is happening across the globe today. Thankfully, we do not experience that here. Praise God. That may not always be true, but, but we don't have to fear that because Jesus is our king. And he said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Paul said that, right? It's crazy. No one tried to stop him. He's in jail. <laughs> He's on house arrest. They are trying to stop him, but it can't. Nothing will stop the kingdom of God so perfect for the Holy Spirit to end the book of Acts in this way. Because we live that now. We are living this same reality now. We're walking into the world today knowing that Jesus is our king and nothing will stop the church. And so we can go with boldness, not to domineer or conquer others, but to radically serve and love others in hospitality and proclaim the good news of Jesus. So let's live like that, City Hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you. God, and we ask that you would be gracious. 
Lord, we've been walking through this book trying to learn the things that you are doing in our lives. And God, we pray that you would make us ultimately a people who proclaim the good news of Jesus and live it out and see the kingdom expand because of who you are and what you are doing. Would you give us that kind of humility to grow in this way? And Lord, would you be honored in the things that we do, we pray in Christ's name, amen.